please let me introduce three inspiring women, social worker Suzanne Rochon, psychotherapist Carmen Jelly, and educator April Porter. They wear many hats such as practitioners, leaders, best-selling authors, entrepreneurs, moms, and wellness transformation mavens. Together, their creative conversations encourage and support you to make deep personal changes and reclaim your inner strength, power, and authenticity. They explore how change is made possible using strategies and practices from a blend of neuroscience, psychology, Eastern and Western philosophies, compassionate inquiry, and much more. Yes, returning to the real you, who is hiding behind habits, survival strategies, and protective personality parts. Each episode is a deep dive into all things wellness for your body, mind, and soul. They share deep, intimate, reflective, and raw conversations with the risky intent to encourage, inspire, educate, and empower you to uncover, unlock, and unleash your best and most real self. With their raw, risky, and real approach, they will take you on a journey from wounds to wellness and your return to real, your perfectly imperfect you. Here are Suzanne, Carmen, and April. morning Carmen good morning April here we are again good morning good morning nice to see both of you wonderful to see both of you and to spend some time together having courageous conversations so welcome to our returning to real podcast series with Carmen Jelly Suzanne Rachel and our return guest April Porter We've been exploring Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart. Uh, this is her latest book, and it's been amazing. Um, we're now on chapter six. If you haven't heard our previous um, podcasts, please um, have a listen. We've gone through chapters one to five, and here we are on chapter six. And this is uh, the places we go when we're hurting. I think it's safe to say that we've thoroughly enjoyed um, this book. It's been, uh, I've gained immense, immense knowledge um, from the reading. And I know that we've enjoyed our conversations. I also know that we're really, really eager to start the conversation. And uh, the emotions that we're going to be talking about today from chapter six are anguish, hopelessness, despair, sadness, and grief. So I just want to say this is a heavy chapter. It's a heavy conversation. And I'd like to give our listeners and ourselves permission to recognize the discomfort if it does arise, um, you know, we may be talking about things that are triggering and that's okay. That's okay. If you need to step away from the podcast, um, then let's do, then, you know, let's go ahead and do that. And we can give ourselves permission as well uh, to take a breath and to take a moment um, because this is really what it does mean to be human. And, and I think it's important for us to recognize that. So, anguish, anguish, what a word, mm. it's described as an almost unbearable and traumatic swirl of, of shock, incredulity, I don't know if I've said that word well, the French in me doesn't always pronounce <laughs> um, the words well, uh, grief and powerlessness. Brene describes it as a singular emotion. And what that means to me or how I interpret that is there's nothing quite like it. Mm -hmm. And she also says that it must be named. Um, I know that I had some aha moments when I read this, um, but Carm, I'm wondering what your, what, what, what came up for you and, and what resonated for you when you read about anguish? 
Yeah, I wish I would have had understood it better most of my life, but now it's a word that really resonated with me. Um, you know, she says, anguish often causes us to physically crumble in ourselves, literally bringing us to our knees or forcing us all the way to the ground. And as I was processing this chapter, I had some memories come flooding back of when that actually happened. And, and I think our, our, our listeners might be able to relate to that too. And so, you know, anguish, this chapter is about the places we go when we're hurting. So it, it is, anguish is really heavy and it does go into our bodies. I like how she referenced that, like it, it goes into our bones because, you know, as compassionate um, inquirer practitioners, we do a lot of work with not just our emotions, but also with our bodies. And I think anguish can be very traumatic. Like she does ca categorize it as, as trauma mm -hmm. and it, it needs to be taken seriously. We need to be so kind and gentle with ourselves when we, when we think about experiences that cause anguish. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's even a difficult word to say, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's a difficult word to say. And, um, and I think sometimes if you think back to a, an experience you've had, if I think back to an experience I've had where I can use that word, it almost feels like an out of body experience. Like it almost feels, I don't know if it's because it's unbearable in that moment when you've gotten a phone call or you're, you know, there's some sort of information that's come to you that put, brings you to your knees. Um, it feels a little bit like it's not really happening. And so it's, it's difficult. Yeah. That's what struck me about anguish was the physicality of it. Yeah. And she uses words like, you know, it, it goes for your bones. You crumble, you fall to your knees. It takes your breath away. And I was absolutely astounded by truly how physical anguish is. And I think that's why it's important for us to name it and to talk about it. Because as human beings, if we haven't already experienced anguish, and I can say that I have, I, I can vividly remember, you know, one or two moments in my life where I fell to the ground because the pain was so unbearable. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's safe to say that if, if our, you know, if our listeners haven't experienced anguish yet, they will at some point in their life because that's part of being human. And it's such an important, I think it's such an important thing to recognize because there's nothing wrong with it. It doesn't make you a weak person to mm -hmm. have an experience completely take your breath away. It's our body responding to something that is so incredibly difficult and painful. Yeah. She talks about the element of powerlessness, right, in her definition. And I think that's why it is so difficult because it's something that's happened beyond our circle of control the you know we're unable to change it reverse it negotiate we don't have any of those you know abilities so even in those situations where we can temporarily reroute it with our to-do list and task and you know just avoiding it distracting anguish will find its way back to us if we don't process it if we don't give it space mm. And that's, yeah. yeah, that's what she says on page 95 too, is when we experience anguish and we don't get help or support, we can find it difficult to get up off the floor and re-engage with our lives. Mm. That's so powerful. Oof. Yeah, It is so powerful. Um, and there are a couple, of, there, are, there are actually a couple of images in the book yeah. that were absolutely striking to me. Yeah. And just the, um, 
you know, just how the depth, I think that's what it is. It's the depth of emotion that even the word itself captures. And, you know, she, and you're right, April, she does talk about um, if you don't, if, if you don't process it, and often if you don't get, if you don't give it the necessary time or get the necessary help, and often it is, um, you know, the, the, through the help of, of a professional, not always, but certainly, um, you know, sometimes that's really, really important. It'll find its way back. Mm-hmm. One of the things that does strike me, though, is she speaks of the human spirit is resilient. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. for me, that leads us into the conversation about hope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we can't talk about hopelessness and despair without actually talking about hope. And she talks about it as she says that hope isn't an emotion, but we can't talk about it. We can't talk about hopelessness and despair without actually understanding what hope is. Mm. And she says, we need hope like we need air. And I love that. I love that. And it reminds me of a bit of a debate that I had maybe like 20 or 30 years ago uh, Mm -hmm. with a friend. And we were debating what was most important, love or hope, love or hope. And we went (laughs) back and forth, right? I don't know that there's an answer to that. Um, But, you know, when you think of, uh, and they're both necessary, um, but I love the image and the description of, you know, we need, we can't be without hope. Mm. What does hope mean to the two of you? Well, she shifted my perspective because she says hope is a way of is um is not um a fuzzy warm fuzzy feeling that you know fills us up and floods us that's not what hope is it's a way of thinking it's a cognitive process so that was really interesting right Mm -hmm. um and then she lists a trilogy of of goals pathways and agency um, when she mm-hmm. defines it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and does it make sense to be able to think about hope and to, to process it? Does it make sense to have the other end, the hopelessness as well? Like, does it make sense that you have to experience both to know them both? Mm. Like mm. I go back to um, a time where I was, uh, training with one of my favorite yoga instructors, Sean Korn, and um, I was able to go to a five-day teaching uh, workshop with her in Toronto. And she took you through a lot of the physicality and the anatomy and and all sorts of things, but also the the philosophy of yoga um, and and releasing a lot of what we hold on to in our bodies um, as emotions and as ways of thinking. And I remember after one particular practice, I was walking back to where I was staying uh, with a friend and I felt, I felt a real sense of grief, just sort of escaping my body for whatever reason, the eight hours that we practiced that day, something was releasing and it just grief is what came up for me. And it wasn't in, in relation to any specific situation or person or anything. It was just this sense of releasing grief. Mm-hmm. And, and so that makes me think of, okay, so do I have to be able to feel hopelessness or think about hopelessness to have the ability to think of hope? Does that make mm-hmm. sense? It does make sense, April. And I you know what that brings me, what that brings up for me is compassion. And we're going to be talking about compassion in the next chapter. Um, but compassion is really the ability to know one's humanity. Mm-hmm. Not to be able to necessarily have 
experienced the same thing, but to be able to understand it from the perspective of what the person is feeling, right? Mm -hmm. So when I think of, you know, your question, do we need to understand, do we need to have experienced hopelessness to understand hope? I, I don't know that, but I think we need to be open to understanding what hopelessness might be like for the person experiencing it. Mm -hmm. As you were sharing that, what was coming up for me was, yeah, I, I can visualize it on a continuum, no hope, hopelessness, despair, I really can, and how we move through those emotions and it, get Dr. Gabor Metti's um, saying or belief that we we have to like victory we have to have a taste of victory and like it like it more than defeat mm. that that kind of rumbles with me when I think about hope and hopelessness too because we mm -hmm. can really unpack and stay in hopelessness mm -hmm. um, if we've not experienced the other side like the hope is powerful very powerful yes and the agency, right, that we have to believe in ourselves. Yeah, I think that's part of it, right? It's part of being able to go from, like you said, Carmen, the continuum of despair, hopelessness, and hope. We have to be able to feel and think that we can do it, that we believe in ourselves. And maybe it's just, you know, looking at a, a, a weed growing through the cement. Mm, yeah. There's hope there, right? And so just recognizing that the small things that, that allow us to keep going in increments maybe towards more hope. And I wonder if it's even possible to have lived, you know, to, to, to have made it to adulthood without having had a sense of hopelessness at some point. Mm, that's a good point. Yeah. And, and hopelessness isn't, uh, I mean, you know, we'll talk about it in terms of hopelessness and despair, but hopelessness, um, I think, can be characterized as, you know, thinking that tomorrow is going to be the same as mm -hmm. it is today. So, you know, that's one of the characteristics of it. Um, and that can be some really, it doesn't have to be something completely devastating, right, in terms of experiencing hopelessness. It can actually be a little bit of a, I'll, I'll use the word maybe more mundane. So, so I think, I, I think we probably ebb and flow on that spectrum that you're talking about. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it can be daily. Some, yeah. you know, we've probably all had moments where we've ebbed and flowed mm -hmm. from hope to hopelessness mm -hmm. and everywhere in between in an hour or mm. in a day sometimes in a week, a month, a year, right? So, so, so it's not a sort of an all or nothing. It is mm -hmm. sort of that it's all of those gray parts of it. The one thing that really did um, strike me, and I'll go back to hope, was that trilogy that you mentioned, Carm, and, um, you know, the ability to set realistic goals and like you, her explanation of hope really, really changed my perception of it. Mm -hmm. Would never have associated hope with the setting of goals yeah. and being able um, or to have the ability to be flexible enough to, uh, to be open to different pathways. And then of mm -hmm. course the agency of, yeah, I can, I can do this, I can do this. So, so I think she describes that there's a sense of action, right, yeah. in hope. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and I thought that was absolutely brilliant. Loved that. That gave me hope. I, I love that definition, right? Because the action part is so important, right? The agency, the autonomy, and that's also linked to self-worth, isn't it? And self-esteem. So there, we, we, build that in our children we create that in our children and I think the way 
those three things that you just mentioned is we they're teachable aren't they mm-hmm. how many times have I set unrealistic goals for myself very often I do that <laughs> so it's just you experience the defeat and then you then you start to learn right okay what's a realistic goal mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and she states that hope is a is a function of struggle yeah yeah. So, so we do develop hope, not during the easier, comfortable times, uh, but through adversity and discomfort. I thought that was really interesting is that that's, that's where it comes from. Mm. And so, you know, do we then as we grow throughout our lifetime, do we get better at developing that? hope process way of thinking because of what we've lived through. Mm, that makes me think of um, it, it. Your questions always bring me back or seem to bring me back <laughs> to self-compassion, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's what Christian Neff speaks of mm. is, you know, the ability to be able to be mindful and to be able to, encompass all of the emotions as a way of being self-compassionate themselves so over time as we experience it and as we learn that you know we made it through last time or we'll, we probably will make it through this time um you know has the potential i would say to build our resilience and our ability um, to better to better deal with some of these life experiences. And wouldn't it be interesting to um, ask children what they think hope is? Mm. Oh, it would be. What's resonating with me is, is in Brene shares and in the book, how hard it is for her to watch her children in struggle, right? So we know, okay, so hope is a function of struggle, but that doesn't mean it's easy. It's so hard to watch people that you love in struggle without wanting to jump in and fix it or rescue. But knowing that struggle is important really puts it in perspective, doesn't it? And it doesn't make it easy, but it, it, it's important to let our children learn. Mm-hmm. learn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and for me, that's, um, you know, I think that's sort of been a common theme throughout the entire book. Yeah. Is it is so important to just allow all of these emotions, especially the difficult ones. And it's extremely difficult to watch someone else experience it, especially our children, but it is so necessary. Um, It's so necessary. Let's talk a little bit more about hopelessness and despair. We've touched on hopelessness. I wanna take us to despair. Despair is a sense of hopelessness about a person's entire life and future. Mm. When extreme hopelessness seeps into all the covers of our lives and combines with extre- or the corners of our lives and combines with extreme sadness, we feel despair. And, and she talked a little bit about hopelessness and despair being linked to suicidality. Um, and that's the belief, you know, that's when we get into the belief that you know, tomorrow, tomorrow's not going to be any different than today is. Um, let, that's a difficult topic. It's a difficult place to go. But what comes up for you when we go there? Heaviness, right? Just the heaviness of despair when you feel it or when, or when you're in the presence of it, it it's, it's heavy. 
Um, but I, I love in the book on page 103, she talks about the research on resilience, right? And that if we, and she talks about the three Ps, personalization, permanence, and pervasiveness. And these are three things that we can look at to help us move through despair or, you know, counteract it, I guess, maybe, right? When we, personalization, we take things, it's about us, right? It's about us. We take it too personally when maybe it isn't. And that's a, that's a part, a heavy, part of the heaviness of despair. And like you mentioned, Suzanne, the permanence is where you think it's just never going to end, that it's just there and it's stuck to you, stuck in your bones, right? But nothing is permanent. And so it's that mm -hmm. shift in the way we think, right? Um, I mean, in terms of the permanence and uh, what the last one was, um, pervasiveness. Right? We fall into the, the trap of nothing good is left in the world. Um, and that it it's just takes over our whole world, every area of our life. So those are the, mm -hmm. you know, if we can look at those three separate words, it gives us hope. <laughs> yeah, I think of um, a few words and I think of it sort of, uh like a well if i'm sitting sort of at the bottom of a, an empty well and it's emptiness nothingness numbness right i feel like if you continue to go if you look at that as a spectrum like you were saying earlier you can continually go into despair until it's really nothingness and so it's important i think for some to, to re recognize those three Ps, right? Because it's kind of like a rope to help you out or a little ladder to start to climb and, and to recognize thought patterns and emotions. And you're right, it's, it's sometimes not personal, right? But we think it's so personal. And sometimes we think it's just always gonna be this way, but it's not always gonna be this way. And, and to be able to not um, think of it in a pervasive way, right? Is mm. that, um, that there is nothing left. Yes, there is, right? So if you can get to that one rung on the ladder and then put your foot on the next one and continually go upward and out of mm. those, those feelings of despair, we can all move through it yes. and I love the way that she reality checks some of this with permanence with the questions will this issue be a big deal in five minutes in five hours in five days in five months in five years that's beautiful I that's a practice that I want to incorporate so that really yes. does does do a little bit of a reality test and and can shift the belief that this is permanent. Yeah, perspective, right? Yeah, perspective, yeah. being able to see another way. And, and sometimes that's really having a conversation with somebody or getting that help from your therapist or, you know, it's really about moving through it so that you, you don't get stuck there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The three Ps really resonated for me as well. Um, and there were, you know, permanence. I remember, I remember several years ago, several years ago, thinking, uh, and for me, the image that came up, you know, when I was in that, that moment of despair was, um, will I always be, and I asked myself, will I always be in the fire? To me, it felt like I was in the fire. And I remember thinking to myself, no, no, you won't be. You're not always going to be here. This is a moment in time. And I love the visual that you created, April, about sort of going up the ladder, right? So that was, you know, the ability to go up one rung, 
Mm-hmm. And sometimes it doesn't seem like a lot, but you're going up. You're taking one more step. I love that. The other one that really resonated with me was pervasiveness because we tend to generalize a lot, right? (laughs) How many times do we say, uh, do we have something happen to us in a day? And we say, oh, I had a terrible day because Mm -hmm. of the traffic jam that I was in. Well, there, let's put that back into perspective. No, your day wasn't really terrible. You had like 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I know that I'm simplifying it uh, because we can't equate, you know, being in a traffic jam with you know, that feeling of despair. But I think, I think it's important to talk about um, how easily we can go when, when something isn't going well or when we're in a dark space, how easily we can equate that to our entire life, mm-hmm. right? And then we miss the opportunity to, to, we miss the opportunities to be able to recognize that we can, we can experience both joy and sadness at the same time, right? And we, I think we talked about that in maybe the last chapter, mm-hmm. right? Sort of the dichotomy. So even though we are in a really difficult space, we can also experience emotions at the other end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. You know what? Childbirth is coming up for me right now. Mm -hmm. Um, My twin daughters are 31 today. So um, it's heavy in my heart and mind, but the permanence part of, you know, that the pain I remember collapsing in the, the hospital room when the, the doctor who I had been assigned to, who I love, wasn't available and I was going to have a complete stranger and, re- and just being holding that old horrible thought about this is, this is the end, right? Like that permanence. And you know what? Five hours later, it was the happiest time in my life. And so that just goes to show you, right? even pain isn't permanent. Mm-hmm. I love that Carm. I absolutely love that. So true. Yeah. Pain isn't permanent. Yeah. yeah. Wisdom. That brings us to sadness. To be human is to know sadness, which is what Brene says. I want us, let's sink into that for a minute. To be human is to know sadness. Yeah. And, and I think for me, what came up was our typical response is actually to try and move away from sadness or to Mm -hmm. move people away from sadness. When we see somebody cry, often a typical response is, oh, don't cry. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Or we try and redirect people Mm -hmm. out of that pain right? And what we know is that, or what, you know, Brene tells us is owning our sadness is courageous and a necessary step in finding our way back to ourselves and to each other. And I thought that was just profound, absolutely profound. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I was lucky enough to be a part of a leadership series uh, that went on for a couple of years uh, with an excellent coach, from Sudbury and one of our exercises uh, brought forward a lot of sadness. And um, one of the things she said is that when somebody is sitting there and they are crying or expressing how sad they are feeling, hold space for them, but do not offer them a, a Kleenex because that is part of trying to fix it. And it's interrupting the moment that you are able to hold space for that person. And I'd never thought about it that way, but now I recognize that when somebody's in front of me and they're experiencing sadness, just to, just to be there for them and allow them to move through it. I love the way you said that hold space. That is something that we practice. And 
also, if I can't sit in my own sadness and tolerate it and be with it, then I can't sit in your sadness, Suzanne, or your sadness, April. Right? And so that I think maybe we feel that discomfort sometimes with people wanting to fix it for us is because people have a hard time sitting in the emotions that we label you know, um, negative, but sadness isn't negative. It just is. And if you're human, you know, sadness. Absolutely. Absolutely. I also liked how she, um, said sadness isn't depression. It's not the same thing. And that that's where language and words are so important. I Mm -hmm. think to us, because I've, I've frequently heard people say, Oh, I'm depressed today well, are you depressed or are you sad? Mm -hmm. Depression brings a a spectrum of emotions, right? Mm -hmm. And even the connotation between sadness and depression is really, really different. The way that we feel about it is very, very different. Sadness and grief are not the same. Mm -hmm. Um, it's so important to recognize that and we'll get a little, you know, we'll, we'll go into grief a little bit more, but I loved just the ability to be able to differentiate and to be able to, to name what it is that we're feeling. People use those words interchangeably, grief, sadness, depression, yet they mean very, very different experiences. And I often witness people, for example, going through some real bereavement, real grief and loss. Sometimes medical doctors will prescribe antidepressants as a, as a fix. And sometimes that might be needed, but more importantly, we have to feel that sadness. We have to feel that grief, right? There's a difference between sadness and depression. And I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and that really came up for me as well Carmen and it's it's actually where my mind went was um because we don't understand the difference yeah. between sadness depression and grief and because of our tendency to want uh, to fix anybody who is experiencing mm-hmm. sadness depression or grief and because of our tendency to want to move away, you know, as human beings, we want to move away, we often end up being medicated um, when, you know, for sadness and for grief, when really the way out is to allow the feelings to be there. And, and I just want to say, you know, we absolutely, you know, there are situations where medication yeah. is the lifeline mm-hmm. um, and we need them, you know, we need the medication. So um, mm-hmm. I just want to be really, really clear about mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But I think we, we go to, uh, we often go to medication really quickly. And really what it does is it ends up numbing us. And, and, and um, circumventing the ability to actually feel the emotions and feeling the emotions is actually what's going to get us out of where we are. So it's a bit of a catch 22. It really is. Yeah. Depression means to depress, to push down, right? Mm -hmm. To push down our feelings and avoid Mm -hmm. them. So, yeah. And that's where the professional support is so important, whether or not you require um, medication to to move through um, either situational or um, something that you've been dealing with for a very long time. I think that you you also need the professional support to be able to allow those feelings to come forward and, you know, connect with a professional so that you can move through it. I think that, you know, on page 108, um, I have a little sticky that talks about the reason we love sad movies. And I, I say in my sticky, it's about connection. 
right? And so when medication alone is definitely at times needed, but you still need that sense of connection, whether that's through a professional or through conversations with friends or whatever that looks like for you to be able to move through it. I keep saying move through it, but that's really the only way there is, right? We have to go through it and it um, can be really difficult. Absolutely. April, I love, we need connection. We are, mm -hmm. we are beings that we require, we need each other. We, we, and, and so many of the things that we do, our behaviors, um, the emotions that we feel are an attempt to gain that connection. And I love what she said about sadness. Sadness moves the individual us towards the collective us. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's how necessary it is. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a vital function mm -hmm. of, of being a human being. How powerful is that? How powerful is that? And and you know the, the the whole the whole piece about sad movies. We love them because yeah. they make us feel connected. Mm -hmm. that was, that's mind blowing to me. It's absolutely mind blowing. Sad movies, sad country songs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's yeah. right. But I'm gonna go back ah. to what you said about holding space because that sums it up holding space and we know that trauma isn't necessarily what happens to us not the event but it's it's what happens inside our bodies and so if we don't have anyone to to, to process that with with that where the trauma does happen inside of us and so holding the space means that i see you i hear you i feel you right and and then you feel that connection that you mentioned yeah beautiful beautiful carmen that's a beautiful segue into grief talking about holding space and grief i'll just mm -hmm. read uh, a quote from elizabeth gilbert who um uh the, the quote is in the book and then i'll turn it over to you for your thoughts on grief grief does not obey your plans or your wishes Grief will do whatever it wants to you, whenever it wants to. In that regard, grief has a lot in common with love. Mm, what comes up for you when we talk about grief? Loss. When she talks about loss, longing, feeling lost. The sense of helplessness kind of comes up when I think about grief and the heaviness. Um, and there's different kinds of grief too. And some of them, some of our society doesn't necessarily recognize. And sometimes we are encouraged to push through it quicker to get over, to just snap out of it. Like there's some of the sayings that are not compassionate are kind. So there, there's sometimes shame can be attached to different kinds of grief as well is another really heavy word mm -hmm. yes yeah there's that sort of um loss of control right you don't have control like elizabeth gilbert was saying over grief or love and mm -hmm. i think that that's the connection and um and like i was talking about you know the yoga training that i did I kept feeling that whatever it was throughout that day. And when I was able to walk back to where I was staying, that's what came up was, wow, like it wasn't sadness. It wasn't feeling depressed. It wasn't feeling anger. It really was a sense of grief. And, and when she explains the different losses and longing or feeling lost, it makes sense that that's, what I was feeling and, and it wasn't a negative, I, I didn't have a negative connotation associated with it. It was just as though it was finally able to process within my cells and my bones 
and I was able to let go of it a little bit. Mm. And that's the importance of physical movement yeah. and going yeah. back to the body to process some of these emotions. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't, because we know that our emotions live in our bodies, right? And what you just described, April, was mm-hmm. there was grief living, living in you. And mm-hmm. through, you know, whatever that experience was through the day for you, you're able to release it. Mm-hmm. What a beautiful testament to mm-hmm. the, you know, the mind-body connection. Mm-hmm. Mm. and the myth the myth that we just get over it too right like it's grief is is as unique as our fingerprints it's you know she talks about that and it doesn't mean that we ever get over it grief just finds a place to live within us or we 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 adapt to it but it does come like waves sometimes right something that you think you know something I lost a dear friend when I was 17 and a muse, a song on the radio can trigger that, that flood again of that deep grief. And I think it's important to share that too, that it, it comes and goes like waves through our bodies. Mm, Yeah. I love that Carm. It absolutely does. And I think, you know, it's the, it's the adept, we adapt we adapt, we don't get over grief, we adapt to grief. Um, And even after we adapt to it, the grief is still there, Mm -hmm. still there. Mm -hmm. I wanna spend, so she goes through acute grief, complicated grief, acute grief um, is the initial, you know, period after life, integrated uh, grief is, um, is when we've adapted to the loss. I want to talk just a little bit about disenfranchised grief, because I think that's important for, mm-hmm. I think it's important in our world, right? And, yeah. um, and, and those are when the grief isn't openly acknowledged or um, publicly supported. And those are things like, um, you know, separation, divorce, uh, the loss of an unborn child, infertility, um, you know, somebody who has a family member with addictions and you ask them how Christmas was and that person wasn't there at Christmas. There's, there's grief there, but you can't express it. Or we believe that we can't express it because, you know, we can't acknowledge it openly. So I, I just want to spend a little bit of time just recognizing that there are so many people out there who are experiencing disenfranchised um, grief and none of us know about it. Mm. Yeah, this, this is really important to talk about this because it's, it's the false belief that people don't deserve to feel their sadness or deserve to feel their grief because maybe it's something, a decision that they made, but that doesn't matter. There's still, there's still some grief there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's easy to recognize the acute grief. Yeah. Right. When um, someone passes away or there's, you know, you lose a pet or there's something, you know, an event that happens that's uh, well known, but then does acute grief turn into disenfranchised grief at times because what if it's been 10 years but you're still going through all of those emotions right and and you feel that deep sense of loss and but people have moved on and you've you've adapted like you said Suzanne you adapt but it doesn't mean that it's not still there to some degree absolutely absolutely and that's the complicated part of you know, of, of complicated grief is we haven't, we haven't moved along. Right. And, and, and it's especially relevant um, when talking about disenfranchised grief. Absolutely. Because it can still be there several years later, several Mm -hmm. years later. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. An, an example of disenfranchised grief. I remember when my grandmother passed away. She was nine, almost in her 98. Yeah, she was 98. And so she lived a beautiful, long life. But I was, I was very sad and I was in deep grief. And I did have people minimize that and say, like, why are you grieving? Like, there's no need to grieve. And so that that's that's an example that people need to adopt more of a sensitive appreciation or attitude in terms of grief is grief. There isn't absolutely. And thank you for sharing that, Carm, because I think sometimes examples um, are important to share, right? Mm -hmm. I think it brings us back to, you know, we never know what somebody else is going through. Mm -hmm. You know, the person at the store, you know, the person at the red light that we might be annoyed with or whatever, we never know what somebody else is experiencing. Um, I just, I wanna thank you both for this conversation. Um, and I'm, I, you know, as we were talking, I was even noticing the tone of our voice mm -hmm. in comparison to the tone of our voices in some of our other podcasts. Um, you know, it was, it was a little bit more subdued. Um, you know, our, we were a little bit more reflective, a couple more pauses, you know, in between, you know, within our conversation. And I think that's just a, it's a reflection of um, the depth of the, 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 the topic and, um, and, and really, you know, how we were processing it, right? Mm -hmm. Because as we were talking about it, things were emerging for us as well. So I just want to recognize that. Um, and thank you. Thank you both for um, such a beautiful conversation and such openness. And, um, and let's leave our listeners um, with, um, with a quote. Um, quote, I'll just, and we've said this through the, 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 the podcast today, but let's remember that the human spirit is resilient. Mm. And let's remember that all of these emotions are geared to connecting us as people. Absolutely. So, thank you, my friends, for this beautiful connection today. Very well said. Thank you. Thank, thank you to you both. Yeah, and always an honor to hold space with both of you and to our listeners. We are honored to hold space with you and be kind and gentle with yourself as well. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. If you have enjoyed today's discussion, please like, comment, and share with others. We invite you to explore the many other returning to real conversations with rich insights and practices to guide you on your life's journey.